Hi and welcome to the podcast, you're having tea with Alice. This week's episode, uh, I'm not drinking tea, I am being tea. I'm sitting here with my week old new baby that I have um, brought into the world. And it's, uh, I mean, I know that uh, <laughs> there are people who don't come to me for parenting material um, but this is this is a big week for me. Um, it's it's a lot, and I will find ways to describe it better as I go. One of the things that I'm doing a lot at the moment is um, staring out to sea and feeding my baby and singing the songs that my mum used to sing to me, and weeping. <laughs> In, not in a bad way. It's the process of of bringing someone into the world through your body takes you very close to the edge of of um, life and death and what it is to come into the world and go out of the world. And also, I'm hormonal. I created a chocolate wrapper. It's not necessarily that pro- profound, um, but that's and that's about it in terms of what I want to say um the episode this week is with Dr Justine Rogers an old friend and colleague of mine we used to be in an all girl comedian all ex-lawyer um group called aggressively helpful and I had many of my first sort of formative experiences in the comedy scene in Australia with Justine alongside Justine Um, She's a person of profound insight and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Um, We had it when I was um, extremely round and I have not gotten around to putting it up because it's been been a big couple of weeks. Um, Thank you so much for listening. I will keep putting out content. Um, There might be a few weeks hiatus in Tea with Alice as I get this stuff. Um, sort of figured out to a certain degree and uh, thank you to everybody who supports me on Patreon you are the reason I get to have some sort of maternity leave um, patreon.com slash Alice Razor it's this um, incredible thing to be supported in the work that I do by people who like it um, it's a one-stop shop over there. I sort of centralise everything. I mean, there's also my website, but I'm bad at keeping that up to date. But um, it's patreon.com slash Alice Fraser, and you can go there and <laughs> look at the things that I have there. I, I put up blog posts, and, and I have all the links to my things, and I have a weekly uh, Tea with Alice salon, again, probably on hiatus for, let's say, a month, Um Though it's just a lovely conversation with really interesting people, so I feel like of all the work that I do, that would be the first thing that would come back um, probably when I have put clothes on again. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening, um, and I'll talk to you again next time. You're having tea with Alice. Who are you and what are you drinking? 
You don't have to be drinking something right now. It can be a, a broader answer than that. So I'm Justine Rogers and I'm drinking a hot water. Ah, very good. Pre-tea. Is that okay? <laughs> Pre-tea, it's absolutely exactly. okay. Uh, why yeah. are you drinking a hot water? I just love hot water. It's very comforting. I've always, you know, I don't drink coffee or any um, tea tea. So it's either herbal tea or water, hot water. Yeah, I like I like, I like a hot water. I feel like people sort of think of hot water as inherently kind of puritanical or something. Well, I thought that. <laughs> but it's I not. was like, it was seen that, yeah, it's not part of a bigger kind of thing of depriving myself of good things or food or anything like that. Just makes me feel comforted and. Yeah, I think we need that in these times. I am a big believer. And and it's sort of um, a minimum viable product for comfort as well. Like I think if you can get comfort from hot water, like you're starting at a good <laughs> yeah. level because there's many more things that are more comforting <laughs> than that uh, sure. that are more effortful or expensive or, you know, upsetting in various other ways. So I, I applaud you for your choice of hot water. Thank um, you. What what have you been wrestling with of late? What have you been thinking about? Well, lots and at really annoying times. You know, I definitely I had a, a wake up at 3 a.m. the classic last night. I think it, technically everyone wakes up apparently between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m. Like it's some kind of change in our lung function that we all technically wake up, but most of the time we don't notice and we just turn over. But I woke up and had all these thoughts about, I mean, it was weird. It was about fostering and adoption and I think I've just saw, it was because I went to bed. Before I went to bed, I looked saw one of those videos of men being asked by their stepdaughters or foster children to adopt them. It's this oh. sort of, I don't know if you've seen it. So there's just, it's basically you watch it because you feel like crying and you want to release something. <laughs> so it was just this sort of montage of different like, can you adopt me in boxes and stuff and these big men, you know, breaking down. And so I think that was in my mind. I just watched. I didn't cry usually, you know, not because I didn't want to. I just it didn't get me. That one didn't get me. I, there are others. Um, but I think that combined with just the times, I don't know, my brain was really wrestling with that in the evening. But that's, I guess, the broader thing I'm definitely wrestling with right now is families. Yeah. And so I thought we could talk a bit about that because we love talking about that, us two, because we're both twins. Yes. We're both we very, um, you know, we think a lot and talk a lot about family when we're together. So I thought we could talk about that because I'm trying at the moment to um, move my uh, research, which is at the moment more on kind of ethics and identity, into something more systemic and family-oriented. So I'm in the process of reading lots about family. Um, so just to say that I'm, yeah, I'm a researcher at UNSW in the law school and um, I don't really haven't really I don't focus so much on law I focus on sociology and ethics but usually in the legal context or for lawyers or to do with the legal system but I'm trying to move more into families and instead of sort of uh yeah having to kind of do have these two different interests and lives that aren't very well aligned I'm wrestling with how to better align them and I've come up with the fact that I'm now going to do some go back to empirical research some ethnography which is uh, basically a fancy way of saying anthropology mm-hmm. of um, of family therapists and family mediators and looking at how they um, basically heal, transform or just do things to and with families. Um, and I've really, I'm really interested in that. And I think one of the things I've been thinking about 
I hope, is this too much too quickly? Am no, I meant to go? No, absolutely. There's no meant to about this. I think this is <laughs> a, a fascinating um, area of, of interest and, and everyone has a family or something like a family, right? And I think it's also yeah. just like an incredibly difficult area of research because, uh, you know, as as you probably know, everyone's super defensive about their own family because almost by definition they did the best they could with what they had. Yeah. And that's and a real, but that's a, that's a good approach. You know, that's exactly what I'm thinking about. How do we have the kind of mindset and kind of approach to thinking about families, both not just as a researcher, but obviously research is me search. This is really for myself. How do I think about my own family and other people's families in a generous way, in a curious way, in a sort of way that looks at a family as, like you said, they're doing their best. They're sort of got a limited set of resources, whether that's money or psychological resources or, you know, what they've learned, all those things, the support networks they have. Um, how do we maintain that kind of more curious, generous approach, but also deal with the fact that we all have a, a part of us that's very linear and judgmental yeah, and magisterial and, dad and all of <laughs> yeah, that yeah. stuff. And we want a final truth and a kind of, you know, a moment for them to say, you know what, we did make a mistake. You're right. Um, but they don't say that because it's going back. They're waiting for their apology and, and you know, recognition from their parents. And, and they, you know, so it's interesting. We have, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot, how um, for what is it? So this sort of sense that like, we want people. We want people to apologise to us in a very uh, linear and kind of one truth way. Like you're right. You you know you're right to blame me. You're right to think about this in the, this the past in this way. But for ourselves and our own roles, we want a systemic, generous approach. You know, so we're all stuck <laughs> because we all want the kind of thing that we're not willing to kind of receive from someone else, if that makes sense. We all want kind of a systemic thing that isn't, as you say, blame about blame and about accusation and about kind of um, sort of someone's moral innocence. We want, we don't want that for ourselves, but we are kind of expect it from others. So I've it's, been thinking a lot about that. It's incredibly difficult. That is an incredibly difficult thing to figure out where your culpability lies, particularly when you're a victim the narratives of victimhood at the moment, uh, which is a very loaded term, but are, you know, that you can't even ask where someone might have some level of responsibility or, or you know, whatever it might mm. happen to be because that is considered invalidating the crime that was done to them or the wrong that was done to them or the harm that was done. So you can't ask, you know, is there a different way you could have gone about that or could you have responded better in the moment or any of those other yeah. things because we really, it's really important for whatever reason at the moment in discussing harms that are done to really, you know, focus on the perpetrators. Yeah. Um, and, and also that's even, fucking um, tough, right? Yes, and even, um, you know, even if you didn't want to be quite so and I, I'm saying this as someone who loves being magisterial and kind of, you know, you apportion this blame. You know, we're both lawyers, so we're both coming from that mindset of like you're negligent in this way, you know, a bit of contributory negligence and we want to kind of apportion blame and assign things. But it, when I'm reading about this sort of more around families and family dynamics, family therapies, family systems, it's really hard because they, and I'm not saying I fully buy into this, you know, it will go back to that kind of thing, what you just said, because I think, 
we have to have these both things at the same time and this is what I'm wrestling with but they're saying it's not necessarily even about looking at the victim's kind of habits or responsibility or you know actions per se but look at the wider forces that were externally at play within that relational system between those two people that can seem quite grim if you're looking at kind of a, you know a really horrible crime but certainly in like in relationships and families in even in friendship relationships you know there's usually there are there is more than one perpetrator there is there's a whole and there's also a system in place um and that you know those systems are things like um you know obviously socioeconomic belief systems all those things we might think of but also roles um organizations within a system like within obviously with, it's easier to think about it within families with parents and children but even within within friendships as well there are secrets there are alliances there are myths all those things that are kind of structural forces shaping these relationships um and I've been thinking about that a lot, even the role of, you know, secrets in families and how that can be transgenerational. So I'm fascinated. You know, we've talked a lot about that. Yeah, I'm fascinated by um, hypocrisy recently. I've been thinking a lot about hypocrisy and where it's a good thing because if nothing else, <laughs> <Tell me. laughs> yeah. if nothing else, the current era of discourse is demonstrating to us very much the um, problems with authenticity. <laughs> Let's put it that way. There's a lot of people being honest cunts right now. And I don't think it's good for society. And m maybe there is something to be said for people who are at least pretending that it's important to be good, you know, <laughs> that there's something so, to that. So hang on. So what do you mean by honest cunts? So people... Well, you know, I'll, I'll use Donald Trump as the example. There was a man who, you know, never pretended not to be an absolute asshole. And was right, okay. reveled in oh. his awfulness. Yes. And people were like, well, look at him, he's being honest, you know, and that was what was admirable about him. Or you see these kind of influencers, celebrity influencers who are just being, or reality television where you see people who are just being awful, but because they're watchably awful, they suddenly become role models. Mm. And then you think, well, I, I think I would, I might prefer it if they were at least pretending to virtues because that it acknowledges that virtue is a good thing. Yeah. Whereas if, if everyone's just reveling in how awful they are and, yeah. uh, well, you're like, well, at least they're being honest because we're all awful. There's something really nihilistic and upsetting no. to me about that that I would, I would prefer. I think I, I, I don't know, but I think I might prefer <laughs> yeah. if people were lying about their morality because then at least it implies that there's some value to morality and to the yeah. appearance of morality. It's aspirational something about it. Yeah, there's um yeah, there is something at the moment in the sort of I, I don't know if it's just because of the wider context of COVID. I mean, I mean someone could obviously analyze the rise of Trump and the wider political forces, but I think we have become a bit for whatever reason and whatever we're reacting to, but a tired of trying to be good. And there's this sort of, we've always got a gap between, you know, everyone's morality is so important to themselves. That's why it's so funny that everyone's like, I love how that person's so awful. But actually when it when it comes to our own identities, we clutch so tightly to our sense of moral innocence and, and goodness, you know, that we can sort of talk. If you turn that on other people and said you're a really awful person, even those people you're watching, even Trump, even people on reality TV or whoever you're talking about, they'd be so 
quick then to defend themselves, even though they've been complete pieces of shit on TV or whatever it is. But yeah, everyone still really holds on to their moral innocence. And it's like there's this gap between our idealised self and how we actually behave. And that's for everyone. So I was but I think that this television show, sorry to interrupt, I'll let you back into it. But go for it. Just this so pertinent. I watched a television show the other day and it was called Good Girls or Bad Girls or something. It was about women in middle America who get caught up in a life of crime and they're sort of suburban mothers. And and in one episode they said um, even it doesn't matter if we do bad things, we're still the good guys. Mm. And I was like, how did, oh. how did they rationalise that? <laughs> well, that's the thing. They're the protagonists, so they have to be the yeah. good guys right. or something. There's something about that or, you know, because it's justifiable that they started doing these bad things or because it's understandable because we've been following their stories. They were in a bad situation, so they had to do these bad things. And then the, the subsequent bad things followed on. But just yeah. that, that one line, I was like... I know, well, but that we have so many of these sort of cognitive tricks that we play on ourselves and, and it kind of allow sort of all sorts of shitty behaviour because we have these little, I guess, um, like shortcuts and one of them is moral licensing. So I don't know, I didn't watch that show in particular, but a sort of sense that like if I do a certain number of good things or uh, that that kind of permits me or allows me or licenses me to do something dodgy. So the classic is the sort of guy who, you know, is, basically cheats on his wife at work but goes to church on Sunday or whatever and gives enough to charity or whatever and sort of offsets his shitty behaviour. So I wonder if there's something, but there is something, it must go really quite far because you're right, there is something where people can do the worst things but still say, but I'm a good person, (laughs) you know, I'm the good guy. Um, It's it's funny. Um, And I wonder what it is, you know, there's obviously different ways um, I, I think it's yeah. it's got to do somewhere with the power of stories, that the central mm. character is always somehow right because yes. they're interesting maybe, because we understand them. And yeah. it happens in situations of abuse as well where people who are being abused, because they understand why they're being abused, they can forgive it mm. or they think they can forgive it because they know that it's just coming from insecurity or they know it's just because he's having a hard time at work or they know it's just because she, you know, was wounded by her parent or whatever it happens to be. If you understand where it's coming from, you can give yourself the illusion that it's not that bad, even if you're the victim or particularly when you're the victim because you think you can take it because you're strong. Yes. Gosh, I didn't know we we're going to this place, but I'm going to go with you because I think that's I've been thinking about that not 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 right you know in the in recent months, but um, I think personally I'm someone who can put their hand in the blender when it comes to people who are difficult or harmful to me because I do naturally I'm so curious about behaviour even terrible behaviour, so I try to understand it. I and there and it can it can take me a while to be like actually. Even though I understand this, it's not good for me. I need to, you know, it's not, and it's, it's also not helping them develop or evolve or at least just piss off because I'm sort of, you know, in a way, I guess it's the classic enabling, but I it takes me a while to realise that actually even though I can understand something, it's still not good for me. Or well, it's also not you're, good you're a comedian if, and, and like me. <laughs> Thank you. That's generous. That's generous. I, I mean, uh, a, la- that's, a lapsed, a lapsed a comedian. Lapsed comedian. But yes. <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean the approach that you have is like a comedian, which is I think there's this fundamental um, maybe fallacy, belief, religious 
conviction in in the comedy and possibly in academia as well that to understand something and be able to articulate it to comprehend something is to encompass it and therefore somehow mm. to control it and I, yeah. that's I, that I think is the illusion that can lead you to stick with awful people if yeah. you understand them because you're like if I can just wrap my head around it then it can't hurt me or if I can wrap my head around it then it's in my control not theirs or if I can articulate yeah. it then I have power over it um, I wonder if it's a it's a, a big systemic like you know in terms of academia or, or comedy you know where observers and when people get close to things I wonder if it is some sort of massive fawn response you know in terms of trauma like there are those four <laughs> responses of flight fight freeze and fawn and I wonder if like moving because obviously moving towards and and sort of trying to indulge and engage with this this classic kind of fawn response. Um, so, yeah, but I'm also thinking a lot about motherhood. That was another thing. And obviously um, because I have a, a five-year-old daughter now who's just turned five, and um, with um, the, my reading about family and stuff, I've been thinking a lot about kind of what it means to be a mother. And um, I was reading in this really interesting book, um, called the family interpreted and it's all about how the mother is it's trying to explain basically um, from a kind of psychological perspective as distinct from say cultural or biological where misogyny comes from where kind of sexism towards women comes from and the sort of thesis that this woman puts forward Deborah Lupnitz is about how our mother is the sort of and I'm um, you know the first am I allowed to allude to your you're having a baby, by the way. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm going to be taking a <laughs> few weeks off after this one comes out, so, okay, so uh, that's all right. I was just like, just in case. Well, I thought I maybe know, like genuinely, thing. I didn't announce it till very recently, so that's a very justified. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just thought, you know, maybe you didn't want to go to this topic, but um, and it's kind of cool to be talking about it with you because, you know, you could probably think about it and, and tell me how you're feeling at this moment, but. This, this anyway, the thesis is that this, the mother is a sort of, and I say mother or the primary carer, but generally the mother is this, is like the first witness, our first witness and our first love and our first boss. And as and babies come out, think, seeing the mother as, you know, extensions of themselves and sort of um, this and have this like immense sort of awe and gratitude for the mother for basically keeping the child, keeping you. You, I mean, with in terms of the mother, the baby's perspective, like you are in awe of your mother, keeping you alive, and they talk about her being sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of um, this vehicle for us to um, handle the basically the terror of being in a mortal body as a baby, because we uh-huh. obviously need the mother to survive, and so she then, the mother then, is always an object of all these so-called massive orienti- orienting um, passions, and they're all directed at the mother as object. And the reason they use object as well is because when we're thinking about the mother as child and then this happens as adult, this is a thesis getting back to feminism, um, is that we don't really think of the mother as a full human. We just see her as as an object and only bits of the mother get kind of mapped onto our internal representation of the mother. It's not really our mother, our real actual mother. It's, it's It's a certain representation of the mother. Whereas when by the time we get to know our fathers, even if it's just, you know, hours later, weeks later, months later as a child, they're never enmeshed, then they're always their own subject. They always have their own identity, whereas the mother is always has a sort of is part of the object. Um, and so I've been thinking about that a bit. And also because recently, though my daughter's five, she said that she wanted to get back on the boob. And I was like, well, 
you know, what the hell, these haven't been functional for some time. But she's like, yeah. and I don't know if it's, I think it might be a bit of nervousness about school next year or something. Like she's like, give me the booby. And um, oh, so she was really going for it, like rip, trying to rip off my top. It was quite full on. And so I just said, and I thought she, she's going to be talking about this with the therapist at one point, but I was like, you know, I just had this sudden flash to this book about how my body's not, you know, is a sort of extension of hers. And I said, do you think my body, because I said, this is my body. And she said, no, no, it's mine. I said, what? And she goes, I came out of you. That's my body. I said, it's my body. I said, what about daddy's body? Is that his body or yours? And she goes, his. Like she was like, what are you even talking about him for? And um, and then she started pushing my belly going, bongi, 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 you know, and like, this is my body. And I thought, oh, my gosh, it's real. And so I was going to give her, I gave her a bit of a lecture about it, but then I thought, actually, it's not fair to talk to a five-year-old about object relations theory. But <laughs> it's really interesting that she thinks that my body is hers. Yeah. And so... Anyway, so the whole book is all about how we need the fathers to basically be as responsible for the mortal fear of children, not be like these nightly visitors or just, you know, control the mother, but actually be right in there and as equally kind of subject or object of the fear of being alive has to be also put onto the father. And I think things are changing, of course. I don't know how how you're feeling about it all, the, the split of that role, but yeah, well, so it's super interesting because my brother was the primary carer for his daughter, and he said, and and I think one of the sad, you know, like one of the injustices of the world is that he's such a childbirth nerd and he's such a baby nerd, and he was talking about how very early in Lucy's life the mother is so important because she's the producer of of the milk, you know, for for people who breastfeed, obviously, but you know, as as the father, he felt like it was his duty to do all of the nappies. Because those are the two great needs of the child. Yes, the exactly. And the, and the, so he thought that he he wanted to take as much as he could that role of, of, of motherhood, the, of that bodily the bodily role. Yeah, which um, I thought was a really interesting and, I mean, great. I think we should perpetuate that as much as possible. Uh, yes, but and uh, yes, just, and, and how's it going? Like, and what about Lucy now? Does she see her parents fairly as both? Objects, you know, as both subject and object or like equally? Yes. Well, yeah, so so they, I, th- I think it's really interesting because they've switched roles for the second kid and, and that is just an in- incredibly interesting um, process to watch. But I was thinking about toddlerhood because obviously Lucy's now nearly three and and this thing about like toddlerhood as learning that you're not the centre of the universe, the trauma of learning that you are not the centre of the universe and discovering that you are a very small person with very little power in the world and how disruptive that is. I was thinking of that in the context of, like, the great church reformations, which were basically about (laughs) that. Yes, of course. Like, (laughs) you know, that's kind of what happened, you know, realising that the earth isn't the centre of the universe. Thousands and thousands of people died because that is not something that we... want to, no. Not you don't want for. that to be true, and so the, to- the toddler melting down in in the supermarket is a totally understandable reaction to what is like a profound restructuring a of the universe. Yes, and do you know that that's so interesting you brought that up because the reason I got into studying families as distinct from just banging on about them was because from my theories of justice, um, the, the, one of the courses I teach, there's a theorist, a German theorist called Axel Honneth. And he talks about how um, for humans to self-actualize, to have freedom, to have any sense of themselves as people, 
um, or individuals, they have to be have recognition within three spheres, and that's the, the family sphere, the social sphere, and the legal sphere. So just uh, social is more about like the fact that what you do might be esteemed. So you might say like nurses are always struggling for more recognition that their jobs are as important as doctors, for instance. Or mm. and then there's in the legal, it's fighting for equal rights. But the family one is interesting because, and going back to exactly that crisis, this book actually covers the three-year-old crisis because it says that you're right. Like when we talk, when I talked before about the child seeing the mother as one, that's very healthy and obviously critical at that time. And the kind of healthy child, and I don't, or, and healthy adult, and I'm not saying I'm a healthy adult. I'm definitely not fully differentiated. I'm, you know, this is not good for me. But um, is one that is at one for the, for a good amount of time but then is slowly differentiated or separated at the right appropriate time. So too early, there's neglect. Too late, it's kind of stifling and abusive and, and leads to anxious attachment. So but one of the theories and backing, I guess, to the family, to the mother thing now, just to kind of thread all these things together with feminism, is that one of the theories that Axel Honneth talks about is that on the whole, um, and it uh, basically on the whole that women, girls, sorry, young girls who are two and three, when they are going through that crisis of toddlerhood, which is a really documented thing, so it's amazing that you brought it up, is that um, they at least what girls can t- typically still hold on to the mother's legs or the mother might pick her up. This is very crudely put and not taking into account different role um, assignments like with your brother and his wife. But so if the two or three-year-old daughter is, you know, feeling that anxiety about the separation, typically the mother still puts her up on the kitchen bench and cooks with her and chats with her a bit more, whereas there's, this is all, again, essentialistic, but the boy at that time is pushed out a lot. And they, at that time as well, young boys have a huge surge of testosterone. So there is any way this, this kind of instinct to send them outside to play and mm. to, like, shoo them, shoo them away from the mother. they tend to so, express their aggression often with a bit of violence. Yes, and so... But that the problem is then, and this is, goes back to this kind of idea, this goes back to theories of justice, is that they're saying that women then become, or girls, because as well they're modelling their gender off their mother that they're staying close to, are very much more used to sort of connection and human, like being communal and having justice as ethics of care, whereas boys at the, being pushed off at age three get a very early sense of separateness and and therefore for them justice is about separation, about knowing your legal rights, about keeping people separate and, know, you know, and like obviously transactions, contracts, all those private rights, all those things about making sure no one can interfere with other people, whereas like generally as against other people. As against other people, whereas women's ethics is about meant to be about community building. Again, essentialistically put, but we have this tension all the time between whether our justice system is built on a masculinist conception of separateness, whereas, and it's funny that that's actually been kind of theorised right down to this moment that you talked about with your niece. Well, yeah, that is that is really interesting. And I, I this is slightly tangential, well, it's very tra- tangential, but it was a thing that I was thinking about because uh, I go for my little waddle at the moment past the park and the guy who runs the gym I go to is currently running personal training sessions in the park because we're still in lockdown in Sydney uh, it's a little, you know, 
crappy little community gym. It used to be a bank, so it's quite fun. You can go into the vault to do um, weights. <laughs> it's like a <laughs> nice little private space inside the gym, which is already quite a small gym, but you can go and be sort of not observed, which is I, I, I quite enjoy. Um, but uh, this this man, Nathan, is a very particular kind of nurturing sports guy that I don't think has been examined enough. He reminds me so much of my, like, university um, running coach, my athletics coach, who, like, this is – so this this quality of being the sports guy, being the coach, is considered a masculine thing. But so mm. much of what they do I think is so, again, we're, we're going – Yeah, nurturing. Sense, and, it's so, yes. it's nurturing, it's community building, it's so much – gossip is how's the how's the athlete feeling you know what's going on in their yeah. personal life that's affecting their performance and and tactile they don't mind a bit of a free rub yeah you know no, like they, and they, a... they, they do, they're so yeah they're so generous and kind and, and they, they're so interested in everybody's lives and they have this motherly role mm. that for some reason is a loophole in masculinity <laughs> yes. because you, sports I, is I, manly you know whatever so funny. It reminds me, I think I thought that I would marry a man like that when I was little. Like I knew on some level I never could or would, but we can go into that maybe in another episode, <laughs> another chat. <laughs> but I just remember going like, I just remember that type of man. It was actually from play school when I was really little, so like three or four, seeing a man playing the toys on play school and I like the dolls and like being so, and then like guitar and a bit of singing and I was like, how is this man possible? Like I didn't know that a man could be like that. And I just, I actually genuinely, genuinely remember thinking, oh, that, that's who I'll marry. Um, I, yeah, I mean, I've always ended up with, the, I've ended up with someone very kind and gentle, but not like this type of guy that you're talking about. Yeah, it's such an interesting I, character type yeah. as well. Yes. Um, yeah. Sorry, there's a there's a leaf blower person outside, which is Gosh. always infuriating. They always just decide that they're going to do it at the worst possible. Yes. Moment. I'm just see if I can edit just, it out, but apologies to whoever's listening if I can't quite. Um, yeah. Sorry. Yes. So the nurturing, <laughs> the nurturing yes, man, the nurturing or the man. unnurturing uh, woman, that which is also a thing, mm. um, which is yeah. an, an interesting phenomenon, because it's not, it's not considered a betrayal of role in the same way when a woman does it. I think, except in the context of motherhood. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I've got something else, final random thing I thought we could talk about. Yes. Unless you've got another thing. No. I, I, so mean, I love how you went. things I, that we can talk I about. I wish we talked. I mean, we're friends, we'll I probably guess. cut this bit, but I was like, oh, the hypocrisy thing. Because, um, yeah, I hadn't thought, you know, when, wait, anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about it later. But when you said, oh, the guy being. Um, the honest asshole. Yes. I as thought a redemptive you feature. Well, that is also like yes. when you were talking about the maths of it, the kind of ethical mathematics that people tend to do with themselves, where I've always, you know, because I was brought up Buddhist, it doesn't work like that in the Buddhist theology. It's not, you know, you don't buy indulgences in Buddhism. It's you collect apples and oranges and then you deal with the apples and the oranges. They don't cancel each other out. Um, yes, it's it, a lot healthier. But, um, yeah, that I think is one of, the, one of the things about the maths is, well, like I'm just being honest or at least he's honest. Yes, it's got to be honest. It still has to have another step, another stage, you know, virtue, honesty and virtue, (laughs) not just honesty. Um, 
So, but, you know, before you mentioned something, I think you brought up reality TV people, which is so funny because we're talking about them in terms of the people that we now watch who have got that whole thing of at least I'm honest. And that's, it. Go, you know, now you're about to have a baby. You'll see when you follow, if you follow any of the mummy Instagram people. I, um, and I don't, maybe this will sound a bit devaluing, um, but there is that sort of thing of like being cute about being a bit shit as a mum. And yes. I'm like, you're definitely going to make mistakes. Like I, I was so, so careful about not leaving my daughter Willa on either a, um, on a couch or any surface or bed or something, because my mom is a forensic physician and she's like the number one injury for kids that come in rolling off, you know, they just roll off beds or roll off couches. And this one time I had her on the change table and someone talked to me and I just turned around to say, thanks. And Willa just flipped off the bit of the um, change shop and I grabbed her leg and she then smashed her head into the side of the thing and I felt awful she didn't smash it I shouldn't say that it wasn't like it didn't really make a ma- noise it didn't bring it there was no there was no bump it didn't wasn't a major crisis what I'm saying is things like this happen but there's this sort of thing about being really cute about mummy's gone wild like mummy's having a martinis tonight and mummy just accidentally like oh. Didn't feed her kids for three days, you know, and I'm like, no, stop it. Stop it. Just do it well. Share the things you're doing really well. (laughs) But I know that we're having to share like, you know, our failures because maybe there's been, you know, I get it's a reaction to the kind of Stepford Wives, like presentation of everything perfect, but I sometimes think it's gone too far the other way. I absolutely (laughs) agree. So like one of the things that bothers me is are you okay day? I think it's a manifestation of this kind of same issue on a broader scale. But um, if you're not in Australia listening, Are You Okay Day is a mental health awareness day where you're meant to ask people who you think might be struggling if they're okay. Uh, Generally sort of awareness raising stuff. And a lot of that has to do with people sharing their mental health struggles or their health struggles online. And that is seen as an unalleviated good. Mm. You know, people struggling as mothers or as as workers or whatever it happens to be, that it's like, oh, I've I've done this shit thing and and let everyone down, or I'm having this mental health issue, and and there is something good about it because it's sure. you know, it it can comfort people, can make people not feel weird. Like I I have when I see people battling, it's not that I go like, oh, I'm not in just a way, a comforting way. I think, oh gosh, that you know. We're all yeah, in this. that I'm not alone. You know, that, that's, yeah. that, that is of value. But because so much of life, and particularly during the pandemic, so much of life is mediated through words and through these online interactions and, and, and compressed and squeezed through this two-dimensional thing, that for a lot of people that's it. Like just the awareness raising is the thing. Mm, mm. And that's uh, to me that doesn't feel like enough. And it, worse, the reason it frustrates me is it feels like a proxy for action. Yeah. Well, it's other than an incentive to action. Yeah. It's definitely individualising a problem which has actually, going back to the start of this whole thing, systemic, you know, a systemic basis. You know, mental health is a systemic problem essentially, not just an individual biological one. Yeah. So it does individualise and it kind of, yes, and it packages and it's all bitty and it's very hard to get, as you say, a sort of plan for action or a sort of sense of that action. Um, 
Well, yes. And, and like when I was at a law firm, there was so much emphasis on like looking after your own mental health. And this was like such a grand stride forward for the legal industry. Looking after your own mental health was a priority for our law firms, that we had to keep an eye on our own mental health. And that was so much better than how the law used to be because there's a huge rates of depression in the legal industry. And so mm. them to, reminding us to look after our mental health and to tell someone if we were struggling. And I found it so infuriating because the reason our mental health was suffering was <laughs> yes. because of the way they were making us work or the way they yes. expected us to work or the yes. you know the pressures that they put on us you know it was written into our contract that we were expected to work you know sort of a vaguely worded number of you know a vaguely worded Hours. amount of overtime and you were meant to come in on weekends you know what a reasonable amount of the time or whatever it was just some wishy-washy turn of phrase that meant you could never go home and then, and then yeah. to kind of go come in after that and go well, and say you know, here's a free gym membership, <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's yeah, all, you, they're all it's on you to do some meditation. You yes. need to look after your mental health. It's important for you to look after your mental health because this is a really rough industry. It's like fuck yeah. you, <laughs> like yeah, yeah, no. You're what is the yeah exactly. Even when people talk about resilience, I say this actually to my students. Resilience actually originally comes from ecology, like as in plant health, when you rip off a tree and it grows again. But then it went through the military and then it moved into the kind of management speak well-being discourse. And you always should ask, if anyone says resilience, you should, if you should say, well, what's traumatising me? Like the, think of the leaf being ripped off, that's the trauma, the resilience growing. But why are you ripping my leaf off? You know, like why do I need to have resilience? Um, so, and, and, of course, there's all this literature on like what... Um, you know, what are the drivers of our well-being? It's autonomy, authenticity, authenticity not in the like shitty way that we were talking about before, the branded way, but actually a feeling that you're expressing your values and have some, at least how you're living has some relationship between your core principles. So there's authenticity or autonomy, which is more about control. Then mastery, kind of things, having things that are interesting and optimally challenging, so not too hard but not too easy. And then community and relationships or relatedness. So they're the three drivers. Um, and as you know, Law firms can really not provide the conditions for any of those three things to to thrive and prosper. So, um, anyway, that's just a little nugget of like that here's a framework nice. for you. It's a great framework. <laughs> um, but um, what, what I wanted to talk about though, when you're mentioning, we were talking about um, uh, what we were talking about, reality TV, and I had I sort of I guess this is a bit of a confessional. Um, or confession is that I have used reality TV quite a lot to get through this pandemic. Like, and we're not through it, right? We are yeah. just about to get sort of semi-released and then like obviously but we're all a bit braced for what that might mean, whether that means like awful kind of hospitalizations, whatever else. Let's not even go there. But, um, yeah, I've noticed that I've become more, I mean, I've always been terrible. Like my habits, the TV watching habits have been pretty terrible. I watch really cool things like Ted Lasso and blah, blah, blah great things that everyone's telling me to watch and I love them but I also watch like Love Island UK and The Circle I don't know if you've heard of that that I won't even like it would probably be the worst thing I talk about today but I was thinking about it why I was trying to imagine why like I'll think more about why I'm so attached to these shows because Love Island UK finished about a month ago and a couple of days ago, I even just searched on Instagram the people on that show. Like I don't follow them. I haven't gone that far, but I just wanted to kind of catch up, see how they're going. <laughs> and I was trying to think about like why I, like what is it, especially about something like that show. And I was thinking it's because 
in a way, like it's such a small world. They're all on an island. They're there. It's a kind of simple world. You know, they're all in one place. The task is simple to kind of just basically hook up with each other. Yeah. Um, the world just seems so complicated right now. Like even when you were saying, what are you wrestling with? I was trying to think like my brain's such a copper wire mesh at the moment. I can't even think of like I don't, what I've got you're no resolutions. About. Yeah. yeah, I can't even think of what I'm thinking about. I had no resolution. Like it's not like we can say, oh, and here's this article that I've just finished. Like nothing, it's all, all of the strands are open and, and whatever, meshed together. But I think reality TV, so UK, yeah, Love Island. I was like, little world, one task to basically have sex and whatever, hook up, be hot. And the other thing is they are so nice to each other. Like I was just thinking, like we've had, you know, you and I have had suffered loss in our lives. You know, we've had close family members pass away. We've had a lot of traumas. I mean, it's hard to get through life without at least a couple of the big T ones, but we've had a, a fair few. And in this, you know, I was just watching, like, say, for instance, like one of the guys just doesn't pick a girl because he says, oh, my head's turned. Like, this is the whole language of Love Island. I wish I'd looked it up just before because then I could tell you, but it's all like, are you cracking I mean, on? a side paper like, on the etymology uh, and oh, linguistics so, of Love Island would be fascinating. so interesting because they've got this, this language. Anyway, but one of them, they say, oh, did your head turn? Meaning, like, if a new girl turns up or a new guy, are you now interested in them? Has your head been turned? And if one of them, say the girls just say the other girls. so Regency as well. That's like beautiful because it's like archaic as well as (laughs) anything. Yes. (laughs) And that's how they talk to each other. What will happen if someone comes in? Will will your head be turned? And they're like, anyway, it's so cute. So so anyway, but if the girls say go up to the others and go, oh, his head's been turned or, you know, I'm worried about this, they all rally around and they're so nurturing and sweet to each other. And I was just thinking maybe... Maybe I've been missing a bit of that. Like, obviously, I've got really close friends, including you, but just it just doesn't happen in the same way that if something goes wrong, especially right now when we haven't been able to connect in real life so much. Well, you're in not fact, I've barely seen that. anyone. Yes, and you don't have that. Like, they are all, like, they nurture each other. They all rally around and, like, do the snot bubble crying and nurture. And I'm like, oh, my God. And they say the sweetest things to each other. They're, like, the naffest but sweetest things of, like, you're a strong woman, you you know, all this stuff. They're only 21. And I'm like, I took another 10 to 20 years to even talk like this. But they're like, they're really like big each other up and their messages are so simple but so true. And I'm like, maybe I shouldn't have been doing this damn like comedy and academia and all these like long paths around to like understanding anything. I could have just been watching these shows. Like they get say things that are bang on. (laughs) But they're also living together, I think, which is really profound. I was thinking yeah. about this watching Bake Off. Um, so my, oh, you know, oh. line in the sand or moral superiority about reality television is like I can't really bear to watch it unless they're doing something. Oh, like creative. So good. That's my, you know, what it, obviously it's a ridiculous arbitrary line in the sand. So I'll watch like Drag Race or Bake Off or the Glass Blowing Show or whatever or they're making stuff. That's my. I watch all of them too. But, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that you have to like. You have not, to draw a line just, in the sand somewhere. Not and that's just. Where, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I yeah. Do. Not just making out, but they're making stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, you watch, you watch one of the f- sort of fascinating things is this sort of this tribal belonging thing. You know, if you ever did any productions in school or university of uh, theatre productions, there's always someone in the cast and crew who you fall in love with. And the moment the production's yeah. over, your horizons so open and they're <laughs> yes. no longer the best person in the world. They're just the best yes. person in this very limited group. But that kind of psychology is so quick to click in, that community. Yeah. It's thing. a sort of rite of passage um, war thing as well. Like we're all in it together. and Yeah. yeah. And so you, you, and the, every- with Bake Off, they'll, they'll weep. 
after two weeks (laughs) (laughs) that they might be kicked out. Yes. And this is even in the early seasons before it was like a cultural phenomenon where it might make a real difference to your life before anyone knew anything about that. They have just literally gone yeah, into one place. Like, oh, my Instagram numbers will be 70,000 instead of 1.5 million. Yes, that's changed. But, I, yeah, and we're watching it thinking this is taking like three months, but actually sometimes they slip up and go, 10 days ago, you're like, oh, my God, they've only been there for 10 days and they're crying. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, they, or, you know, in the early days, they're going to different places every weekend. And they're like, so for two weekends, you've been in a tent with some people. And the <laughs> feeling that you might be cast out of this tribe is devastating to the point where you're weeping openly on camera. Yes. Like, yeah, what? that's incredible. Like, that's incredible, we, powerful psychology, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, yeah, obviously pack herd, herd little mammals. And the fear of losing our peers or our group is huge. It's always there. Um, yeah. But I also had it with not just reality TV, but the Olympics. I know probably going to cut this bit, but the Australian basketball team <laughs> got Tell really, us about really I'm not going to cut it. I'm going to leave it in. I love it. <laughs> no, please. I'm just saying that, like, well, Australia was going for, like, we were hoping to get maybe silver, if not a gold, maybe a bit delusional. But we've been trying for like, you know, maybe let's say 20 to 60 years or something, or at least 20 realistically to get this bronze medal. And finally we got the bronze medal. But I was just watching all the games and and I haven't even, I just kind of picked it up. Like I've watched a bit of basketball usually at the Olympic time, but I am not definitely don't even go to any local games. Like I'm a total fraudster. But the way I was plugged into that and like wasn't talking to anyone, wouldn't let anyone talk to me while it was on and I think we've talked about this before. You know, when we're stressed, both of us have, I think in the past we've talked about these like alternate jobs that we might do, like a florist or just something to make everything a bit more simple. And I'm going back to like reality TV as well. Like just we want my world to be like that. I started to think, thinking genuinely, I'm just going to be a basketball blogger. That's my new job. (laughs) (laughs) In those moments. And I was crying about them winning the, the, the bronze like I actually cried and I did know while I was crying that it was I was being like one of those people in Bake Off like crying after you know because it was sort of like me pretending like a fan exactly thinking that I'm part of this community an imagined community which is often as powerful anyway as a real one that I belong to them that somehow they would give a shit about my thoughts on like the gameplay um and I was crying (laughs) I was even crying actually I cried a few days later about it I said, the basketball's over. <laughs> I started crying. And it's only one of like two or three times I've cried throughout this whole fucking pandemic since May, you know, March last year, 2020. I think it's only been two or three times and I think two have involved talking about the basketball. So I probably put a bit onto it. <laughs> and people have died. A few people in my family have died. So I probably put a bit onto, onto it. Yes, it's a I, safe I, thing. I it's a safe channel to, yeah. to attach your feelings to. Yeah. And, and I don't... think, you know, that. That idea, do you have Do you have any, I mean, you're going into a, another major role, you're in a transition right now, but isn't it funny when you're stressed how you start to think of like these jobs that you probably couldn't last at, but, I, yes. you know, I mine's often a florist or a, um, even though being a florist would be really hard work and I'd be shit at it, but it's either that and then recently a yeah, basketball blogger or commentator of some sort. Yeah, like I don't a even... high school sports coach. Or, yeah, what, just <laughs> yes. any of those things, baker yeah. or... Just, just uh, where things where you don't have to worry about the kind of the moral dimension of the impact that you'll have. You're just doing something nice no. for people. A craft, yeah, a sort of craft in the kind of Aristotelian sense of like, or you know, I have a craft. 
I'm giving to my, uh, I know where I belong in society and the social order. And so long as I do that well. Well, it you know. also, it also comes back to that, like, really fundamental idea of, of, you know, witness. If you watch something, you feel like you're part of it. If you see something, you feel like you're doing something. That the act oh. of watching yes. feels like a, like participation. I know. Oh, yes. It is. <laughs> so much of like <laughs> online stuff is that. It's like I'm part of this because I've seen it and all these idiots, unqualified people p- pitching in on things as though they have the right because they saw yeah. it. I mean, I felt like with basketball I even had, you know, you talked about different kind of levels. Like I even was thinking this is different to being online because I'm watching something wholesome and that basketball reminds me of the 80s anyway or something. So I thought of it as like, you know, I was being really nostalgic about it. It was quite crazy for about two weeks. I'll give you a, now you're going to be starstruck because I once (laughs) played um, the national anthem on my little violin for the Sydney Kings basketball team. (gasps) What? Um, How have you not told me this before? In in retrospect, really (laughs) weird because I was never good at the violin. (laughs) (laughs) How did you get this gig? I I have no idea. I genuinely, one of those sort of fuzzy memories from from primary school where somebody just said that was what I was doing that weekend and so I did it and I stood in the middle of the basketball court and scratched out. Oh, my gosh. And was it just you? Yes, on my little violin. (laughs) Is there um, footage of this? No, <laughs> definitely not. Because ah. it would have been in the in Man, the yeah, I know, but 90s, I thought maybe it, early nineties. We could gosh, that's hilarious. Well, yeah. See, you understand. Well, maybe you don't, but <laughs> I do understand. Anyway. <laughs> Simple times. Um so yeah. Well we should wrap this I up. So I, I normally yeah. do the uh, where can people find you online thing? Uh, where can people oh. find and support your work? Or is there another oh, thing that you would like people to find and support if it's not your work? Um, I would love people to move to at Dr. Justine. No, I'd love people to check out at Dr. Justine Rogers uh, on Instagram. It, when you get there, you'll be like, why did you bring me here? But I'm about to start sharing all my family um, research on there. Oh, so cool. I think that'll be a good, so I'll, I'll actually make an effort to put something on so that by the time this is out, there is at least a couple of new posts on there. So maybe I didn't even need to say this. But, yeah, at Dr. At Dr. Justine Rogers. Um, Rogers Dr. spelled no D. D-R or do- doctor with the whole No word. D, no D. Oh, doctor, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was a bit, sorry, a bit paranoid about the Rogers thing. <laughs> um, doctor with no dot, just D-R. Justine Rogers, or one word, Dr. Justine Rogers. Oh, I was um, thinking doctor as in spelled fully as a word. Oh, not fully, sorry. The, the no, prefix yeah. doctor, yeah. Justine yes. Rogers with no D. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward that. name, but we've we've made it confusing. <laughs> sorry. Yes, no. Dr. Justine Rogers, no D, and doctor spelt D-R. Did you know that people, though, just assume Rogers with a D? I always um, think it should be the Fraser with, you know, fries with that sort of the ask if it's a D, not assumed. D. Yeah. But anyway. I think Fraser is a pretty straightforward name, but I am constantly astonished by the number of people who spell it like the television show, which isn't even pronounced <laughs> yes. the same, which bothers me. <laughs> yeah. the, the television show Fraser. Fraser. <laughs> Fraser. A different yeah. word to Fraser <laughs> because it's spelled yes. differently. Anyway, that, that always um, upsets me. 
So uh, I'm never yeah. I'm never surprised by people getting things that seem straightforward wrong because yes. you don't know what it's it, like to be in someone else's brain, do you? It's hard. Yes. We tried. We've tried to get there today. We um, have tried. We've covered a bit. Um, so cool. All right. Well, that was fun. Thank you so much for having really tea good. with me. Lowly rifle doll, 